Charlotte O'Sullivan of the London Evening Standard says, This movie looks and sounds so good it makes your heart thump. Dave Kerr of the Chicago Reader calls it an unmissable film made with a delirious compassion. And Letterboxd user Purple Haze, spelled P-V-R-P-L-E-H-Q-Z-E, says I was not prepared and now I am in pain. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of Rebel Without a Cause. Reboot. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters. Hey, Dan. How's it going? It's going great, John. How, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. It, it, we're recording this on a Tuesday. Uh, I'm really excited that we just released our Scarface episode this morning. Uh, mm-hmm. Another special thanks to Cesar Gracia for uh, joining us on that one. What a cool perspective that we certainly would not be able to give. No, yeah, and I think it 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 it's uh it adds such a dimension when thinking about this movie that that people are so familiar with now. Yeah. Scarface. Uh so uh it was great having having Caesar on and um you know, look look forward to having him we'll pull a three peat with him. <gasps> Ooh, the hat trick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I uh, but yeah, on this episode, we're talking about Rebel Without a Cause, unless you have anything else you wanted to mention about Scarface. No. Okay. Nope, I'm ready. Let's roll. Rebel. Yeah. Uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Do we do we just launch into synopsis? Yeah, let's talk about this. There's a yeah. lot to talk about here with this, so let's just get the story out of the way, and then we'll sure. dig in. My synopsis is quite long, because this movie is complex for a movie from 1955 i was not ex- I, I this is my first time seeing this movie oh. i was not expecting for it to be like this i will say that it, even though i'd seen it before it was the first time in a long time and yeah. i agree and it's a movie that i think it kind of gets almost written off as like a genre like teen movie but as we'll talk about yeah there's really so much more than that going on yes all right well then i will synopsize away late at night at a police precinct intended for juvenile delinquency we meet three troubled teens judy is a popular 16 year old who hangs around with her school's number one no good nicks and was arrested for breaking curfew she has a terrible relationship with her mother and, and much prefers her father, who no longer considers her daddy's little girl. John Crawford, a.k.a. Plato, was taken in for killing puppies and is accompanied by his housekeeper, since his mom is out of town and his father abandoned his family when Plato was just a little kid. And at the center of our story is Jim Stark. He's new to town and brought in for public intoxication. When his parents arrive to the station, we find out that the source of his problems are his parents, who are constantly at it with one another. His father is excessively kind, but to the point where he doesn't stand up to Jim's domineering mother, or even his own mother. Jim, like his father, is also very kind. He tries to help Plato by offering his jacket since Plato is cold. The next morning, Jim encounters Judy and tries to offer her a ride to school. That's when he meets Judy's friends and her boyfriend, Buzz, who instantly dislikes Jim. When he arrives at school, he's targeted and instantly written off as rude and disrespectful, even though he's just trying to get by in a new town. He caps off his school day with a class trip to the planetarium, where he tries to make friends by goofing off. This works only for Plato, who has taken a shining to Jim. When the trip is over, the group of thugs find Jim's car and wait until he sees them to stab his tire. Jim, cool as a cucumber, approaches them and attempts to be civil. That's when Buzz challenges him to a knife fight. Though he tries to not get involved, 
Buzz calls him a chicken and pushes him to the point that they're both exchanging jabs, resulting in Jim having the opportunity to really hurt Buzz. Instead, Jim agrees to really prove that he's not a chicken by agreeing to Buzz's request to do a chicky run that evening. At the cliffside, Jim and Buzz are both given stolen cars to race to the edge of the cliff, the first one to jump out being the ultimate chicken. By this point, Judy has gained respect for Jim. As Buzz and Jim approach their cars, they give each other a gesture of approval and friendship. But as they begin their chicky race, Buzz's jacket gets caught on the car door and he is unable to jump out, causing him to careen off the cliff inside the car. Jim consoles a distraught Judy, but Buzz's goons do their best to scatter before they are linked to the accident. Meanwhile, Jim comes clean about his involvement to his parents, and their plan is just to deny it and move to a new town. But that's not how Jim operates. He attempts to tell the police, but they refuse to even listen to him. Outside the precinct, the goons see Jim and suspects he ratted them out. But Jim gets away, and the goons' only way to find him is to find Plato first. They jump Plato outside his house and steal his address book. Plato runs inside his house and flees with his mother's gun. Jim goes to find Judy and the two head to an abandoned mansion that Plato told Jim about. Plato has the thought to head there too. The three of them fantasize about a life where Jim and Judy are newlyweds and Plato is showing them a house for rent. They have a blast until the goons see Jim's car outside the mansion. Plato sees them and starts shooting. That's when the cops catch wind and start to chase Plato who also believes that he's been abandoned by Jim and Judy. Plato escapes to the planetarium as he's followed by Jim and Judy, who want to protect him, and the police, who want to capture him. Spoiler alert! After Jim successfully comforts Plato enough to come outside with his now unloaded gun, the police see the pistol and reactively shoot Plato dead. Jim and Judy, now involved with the deaths of two friends in one night, are distraught but Jim is comforted by his father, who arrived at the detective Jim met with 24 hours prior. That was a mouthful, and I'm skipping over so much, and I and it's so much to get in there. I hope I got everything that was important. Yeah, I mean, there's so much. and I, I mean, we're going to go back over it. Yes. And hit those fine points, but... Yeah. Yeah, the, and it all takes place over the course of 24 hours. Yeah, it does. I would yeah, probably does. 20 fr- from even... Uh, you know, I mean, you'd consider the first scene to be the scene in the police. The first scene with dialogue post credits is in the police right. station. But we actually, during the opening credits, meet Jim in yeah. this improvised scene where he's just kind of he's drunk and he's like on the ground, like looking at this uh, toy, uh, like stuffed toy monkey. monkey. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he's nurturing it the way that he nurtures Plato at different points during the movie. And, you know, this movie I had always thought was just about teenage no goodnicks, but instead it's just about like, you know, children who grew up with bad parents, you know, and, and complicated parental relationships. Yeah. And that was not what I was expecting. Um, and I wonder if it would be different watching it as like a teenager where it's like, yeah, parents don't understand. And then watching it then as a, you know, an adult and being like, oh, yeah, there's a lot more going on with our three main characters in their relationships with their parents. So much more going on. So much more. So much. And more. I think with the, with hindsight, you know, uh, and that like kind of adult perspective, you look at this and. All right. So first of all, biologically, the teenage years are this period of pre- of pretty like I don't, I don't like I want to say violent transition, but I don't mean in terms of like physical violence. It's a yeah. lot of fast, um, you know, transition. Like your body starts growing and changing like seemingly overnight. So. And that is not, and it's also like psychologically, your brain is developing and you're at this period in life where, you know, the physical changes are happening and you're not sure how that's going to impact you socially. And right. there's so much going on in, in like teens in, in general. And there's so much in this movie that is so consistent with just behavior over time and there's, you know, things change, but things also stay the same. So you have these, these kids who are really on that verge. They're really between 
being children and being independent adults. And with the three of them, you see such differences in the parents and how that affects the kids with Jim. It's the, the father, his, the, the, the impotence of his father who just wants to avoid conflict. Yeah. Uh, played by Jim Backus. Uh, and he's great in this. And, you know, my only exposure to him that I can really remember is Gilligan's Island. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, yeah. uh, you know, you only, you only see this person one way and then you see him in this and you're just like, oh my God, he's playing such a complicated character who's, you know, and, and you know, it's, we we're using words like impotent and I was just thinking like castrated and it's just like, you know, there's all these things that well, are very directly related to. <laughs> well, and, and, yeah. and while we've got the, the, the segue right there, so that, and it, you know, that, that also brings us, it kind of brings us around to um the one to Johnny Plato with the his parents are totally his father is Gone. his father is only present in the form of the child support check. check and the mother yeah. is only present in the form of the gun and the gun right. is that independence it's that strength that it's that masculinity mm-hmm. which Plato and Salminio does not he play, he's very much comes across very boyish Right. Well, I mean, he's in this state of arrested development where he has not had any, you know, proper upbringing. He has not developed because he, you know, his his body has developed and, you know, his his age has certainly developed. But like he has not been given this nurturing life aside from with the housekeeper or nanny or whatever she is. She's the yeah, the housekeeper who's not not given a name. Right. No. And. Yeah, so he, the first thing that we learn about him is that he was brought in for killing puppies. And, you know, not that this term was invented by this point, but that's, you know, serial killer behavior, uh, you know, childhood killing of animals. And and it's like he sees Jim and Judy as kind of this way to like a normal life. And he sees them as these nurturing people because that's what Jim is. And Judy, just because she kind of happens to be there and, and is nice to him towards the end. And, uh, all that goes away when he kind of looks and they're just not there anymore. And he thinks, Oh, they've abandoned me and goes on a little rampage. Right. Right. Yeah. And Jim, like the script calls that out. Um, it's yeah. one of the few moments in the script where I'm like, eh, I don't know if you, I don't know if you needed that, but uh, where where Jim talks about, you know, he just wanted he we were his family. He wants us to be his family, yeah. and but um, and then so Natalie Wood as Judy, yes, as Judy. I think now look, I am not a, a connoisseur or an expert of 1950s teen movies, but. Yeah. I I have to believe that that these characters are really fleshed out and are much more three-dimensional and complex than in most other films because Judy Judy's got Judy's got some problems. Judy's Yeah. Well she's isn't she lying to the cops at the beginning? Well, okay, I'm going to play that scene where yeah. uh she's talking to the uh inspector uh, Ray. Uh Ray Fremnick is the uh, played by Edward Platt, uh, who's, I think, like a really decent guy who really wants to help these kids and like try to understand them rather than just like throwing them away or, you know, just kind of tossing them aside. Like he really wants to help them. And uh, yeah. And here we have Judy talking about why she was out that late at night on her own. What? He hates me. What makes you think he hates you, Judy? I don't think. I know. He looks at me like I was the ugliest thing in the world. He doesn't like my friends. He doesn't like one thing about me. He called me. He called me a dirty tramp. My own father. 
Do you think your father really means that? Yes. No. I don't know. I mean, maybe he doesn't mean it, but he acts like he does. We were all together. We were going to celebrate Easter. And we were going to catch a double bill. Big deal. So I put on my new dress. And I came out and... He grabbed my face. And he started rubbing off all the lipstick. I thought he'd rub off my lips. And I ran out of that house. Is that why you were wandering around at one o'clock in the morning? Weren't looking for company, were you? I don't even know why I do it. Maybe you think you can get back at your dad that way. I mean, if you're not as close to him as you'd like to be, maybe this is one way of making him pay attention. Did you ever think of that? I'll never get close to anybody. Would you like to go home, Judy, if we can arrange it? What's your number, Judy? We'll ask your dad to come down and pick you up. Unless you really don't want to go home. Her lipstick is not smeared in the least. Okay, she has clearly reapplied it. Well, I, I mean, or, but then... Her interaction with her father, which we only really see one interaction with her father, but it, it doesn't. Two, was it two? I know there's the one there's at the, the dinner one table. Where, at the dinner table, I mean, she comes she, in and kisses him on the lips, and he's like, "That's not cool anymore." Yeah, yeah. And then uh, after the chicky run, uh, she comes home, and the parents. Oh, right. She talks to the parents there. Uh, so. One thing that I'm a little confused about, because in that moment, he asks her if she's been looking for company, if she's been, um, you know, meeting random people, perhaps for something in exchange. I don't know. Do you think that she is doing that? Or do you think that she's referring to just running out as like, I don't know why I do it? Like, I, I'm... I'm a little stuck there. Well, yeah, and it's it's ambiguous, but I am left to believe that there are certain things that that she makes up. I don't believe that her father is and and like it it's not unbelievable and when I first like, you know, was li- listening to her, I was like, "Oh, wow." I was like, "This is this is serious." And then and then I was like, huh, there's the makeup thing, but also because I mean, there's like and that's I have a note for that scene where it plays like almost like a David, like I could see Laura Dern in a David Lynch movie. Oh, <laughs> doing. Yeah. um, You know, playing this part. But it, so I wasn't sure I wasn't sure what she was doing. But if you look at the men that she gravitates towards. And she's yeah. not really, I mean, like, she's with Buzz, but then within hours, she's in love with Jim. I know, yeah. So, uh, it, well, she she's clear, I mean, it's very clear that she is desperate for attention and, and male affection. Right, well, I mean, like, the guys she, but also, like, the, the guys she goes for are, like, kind of violent and because mm-hmm. even though Jim, it's like Jim has that violence in him, even though he's a he's a gentle person, there's yeah. that frustration and that that anger, which I guess why he's also like going out and drinking. Yeah. But like when he beats, when he like is punching the desk. Right. And like he am I think like am I thinking of the right movie? Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. When the scene he's where he, like, punches uh, being, the desk in the police station. Right, he's talking with uh, Inspector Ray, and yeah, he just he gets really just like worked up and just takes it out on this desk. Uh, yeah, and it sounds like 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 he gets like he gets into fights, and the family moves to a to a different place. And yeah, so uh, just a little bit more because we we started to talk about his parents 
and then we kind of moved on to Plato and then Judy. But so his father is like we were saying, you know, this very this pushover essentially when it comes to Jim's mom. And Jim's mom is criticized by her mother-in-law, Jim's is that father's her mother, mother. Is that her mother-in-law? Yeah, I believe that's supposed to be the father's mother. I wasn't sure if it was the father's mother or her mother, but no, that makes sense. Yeah, and you know she's constantly being criticized by the grandmother, and you know it's like when when Jim's like leaving for school and the mom's saying like, well, you've got, you know, we, you can have this for lunch or this for lunch. And then the grandmother's like that I made, you know, just like making sure to like remind everybody that, you know, you need to get something done, right. You got to go to the grandma. So, you know, just feeling the need to, to make sure that everybody knows. So yeah. And it's really interesting because there's this scene at the beginning where they're in the juvenile precinct And Jim's dad is looking at Jim. Jim's mom is looking at Jim's dad. And Jim's grandmother is looking at Jim's mom. So it's like watching the eye lines is really fascinating. And then there's the scene where uh, after the chicky run where Jim goes home and he and his parents are having this really intense uh, conversation and, and debate and this they're just like really letting everything out and they're doing this along the stairway and the it's like Jim's mother is higher up on the stairs Jim is then there and then Jim's father is beneath him and the camera then also like does a tilt where they kind of start to go the same eye level. You're noticing all the same things. Well, I'm no, noticing. no, you. I actually took a picture yeah. of it. I'm looking at the picture. I put it in, in my notes. Um, I, I, I took a picture. There are a few scenes that I was like, I want to take a picture of this because it's set up. And I mean, I just I love the way that color in older movies yeah. just pops. Right. And, and like the red of his jacket stands out everything right down, like the shape of of his jacket in the middle and where he's caught between the yeah. mother on the the mother who's in light. And she's but she's like leaning down and like leaning into him. It's and the father's it's just a renaissance of, painting. It's beautiful. The chiaroscuro is magnificent. Yeah, it's really something. And uh and also, uh, you know, there's this scene where Jim comes home and his dad is uh, first he mistakes his dad for his mom because all he sees is this frilly yellow apron. Right. But it's his dad wearing it because he's cleaning up this the dinner that he dropped and he's trying to clean it up before the like mother sees and everything like that. So uh, at that moment where Jim's father is wearing this frilly thing, he's standing behind the like, you know, the banister to the stairs and the you know, it's got like these poles going down that make it look like he's in prison. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like, oh, this is incredible direction and, uh, you know, cinematography. And for 1955, I was just like really blown away. Everything. And, uh, everything. And you're talking about the color. And it's like this was actually original. They shot for a couple weeks in black and white before deciding to go color. And it so makes such just an imagine if this was just black and white, it would not have. You would have had to do a lot has. more with with shadow. No, I actually this is like the color. Uh, I mean, it's just like it, it. You feel the life, and especially I'm looking at this picture, this scene where the red of yeah. of of his jacket, of Jim's jacket, is not only kind of center of the frame almost, but it's like it's this this life and this color that's looking to burst out from like the dad who's yeah. wearing like the beige raincoat and the mother in just like the white night like dress and yeah. But going back to where he finds where with the dad wearing like. Talking about like the emasculation, apron. especially, excuse right. me, in terms of like the 1950s, his father, who's got the yellow frilly apron, carrying mm-hmm. the tray, serving. So he's like this servant in in prison with this the stairs, yeah, uh, like you said, and and yeah, and then Jim is. Uh, you know, during that scene after, um, you know, when he comes back after the crash and and. And the mother is just, 
going at him and and the father's just like yeah. a broken man he's dad stand up for me like literally yeah, and figuratively let's listen to that scene i um it's it's kind of long i condensed it down a little bit just by taking out some of the silences mm-hmm. but i didn't want to lose any of the uh of the dialogue but let's listen to that for a little bit you're home are you all right where were you we were so worried I was going to take a sleeping pill, but I wouldn't until I knew you were home. Can I talk to you guys? I have to talk to somebody. Dad? Uh. It's a great line about the sleeping pill, by the way. Yeah. You better give me an answer this time. Go ahead. A uh, direct answer. I'm in trouble. You know that big high uh, bluff near Millertown? Oh, yes, yes. There was a bad uh, accident. They showed the pictures on, on television, Jim. I was in it. How? How can you do such... It doesn't matter how, Dad. I was driving a stolen car. Oh, that's a fine thing. Do you enjoy doing this to me or what? I wasn't trying to... And you wanted him to make a list. Let him tell it. All right, I'll let him tell it. Oh, she doesn't want to hear it. She doesn't care. I don't care. You remember how I almost died giving birth to him, and then you say I don't care. Please, relax, relax. Let's pause it right there. We'll, We'll continue on with that. But let's just talk about it beat by beat, because right there we have just heard so much from his mom lording over the fact that she almost died during childbirth over him. Like, you don't think I care? Like, she's using that to try to manipulate him. And well, it's just like, uh. and she immediately jumps and says, like, how could you do this to me? How could you do this? He's yeah. he has just told them that he was involved in an accident where someone died in a fiery car yeah. wreck. And she's like, How could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? Oh my god, amazing. I will continue. I said it was a matter of honor. Remember? They called me chicken. You know? Chicken? I had to go. Because I didn't. I'd never be able to face those kids again. I got in one of those cars and buzzed that, buzzed one of those kids. He got in the other car and we had to drive fast and then jump, see, before the car came to the edge of the bluff and I got out okay and buzzed didn't and uh, killed him. Good look. And I can't, I can't keep it to myself anymore. Well, so. you just get it off your chest, son. That's it. That is not what I mean. Dad, I, I have never done anything right. I'm, I'm, I've been going around with my head in a sling for years. I don't want to drag you into this, but I can't help it. See, I think, I think that you can't just go around proving things and, and pretending like you're tough. Yeah, that's right. I, you and you can't, even though you gotta, right. you look a certain way, that, you can't. That's right. You're absolutely. You look. You're you absolutely right. You're not listening to me. You're involved in this just like I am. Now, I'm going to the police and I well, want to tell I them I'm involved in this tonight. Well, and I don't want... Did anyone that... see you there? Oh, Did no. anyone see your license plate? I, I, don't don't other... I don't know. What about the other boys? Do you think they'll go to the police? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Why should you matter. be the only one involved? Matter. Well, far be it for me to tell you what oh, to do. Oh, are you there's... going to preach? Do we have to listen to a sermon now? Well, I'm only trying to tell him what you mean. You, you can't be idealistic all your life, Jim. Nobody thanks you for sticking your neck to yourself. Wait a minute! Accept yourself. You don't want me to go. No! No, I don't want you to go to the police. There were other people. Why should you be the only one involved? But I am involved. We are all involved. Mom, a boy, a kid was killed tonight. I don't see how I can get out of that by pretending that it didn't happen. Well, you know that you did the wrong thing. That's the main thing, isn't That's it? That's nothing. That's that is absolutely nothing. Dad, you told me. You said you you want me to tell the truth. Now, didn't you say that? You can't turn it off. Well, he's not saying that. He's saying just don't volunteer. Just tell a little white lie. You'll learn when you're older, Jim. Well, I don't think that I want to learn that way. Well, it doesn't matter anyway, because we're moving. I'm not tearing me loose again. Well, this is news to me. Just why are we moving? Oh, do I have to spell you it out? You are not going to use me as an excuse again. I don't. Every time you can't face yourself, you blame it on me. That is not true. You say it's because of me. You say it's because of the neighborhood. No. You use every other phony excuse. 
Mom, I just once I want to do something right. And I don't want you to run away from me again. Dad? <laughs> this is all going too fast you for me. You better give son. me something. You better give me something fast. Jimmy, you're Look, very I'm... young. A foolish decision now could wreck your whole life. In ten years, you'll never know this even happened. Dad, answer her. Tell her. Ten years. Dad, let me hear you answer her. Dad. Dad, stand up for me. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, first of all, holy shit, James Dean was, was an amazing actor. He's a fucking live wire, James. I mean, he was, I mean, he was method. Like, the guy, like, uh, yeah. this wasn't just, like, some pretty boy who, like, went from no. being a, uh, uh, like, model. Like, this guy studied. The real deal. Act, like, this guy studied it. He wasn't acting. He was, he was this guy. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then something that I was thinking about with that scene is, you know, the movie's called Rebel Without a Cause, and I have been challenged with that title because it's just like, are these really rebels? You know, they're, they're products of their parents, and is he a rebel just because his mother is using that as an like he's saying using that as an excuse and it's just like she has labeled him that way thus like turning him into one as a result but when you when you look at it it's like this kid he's desperate to include his parents he's desperate to talk this is a teenager who actually wants to talk to his parents they don't listen Imagine that it's so frustrating Oh, they're trying to finish his sentences and cut him off. And I think like that's that's kind of a a big theme of this movie that I think really carries forward is that is, is the idea not just of a generation gap, but of adults who aren't listening to two young people not taking them seriously and thinking like, well, okay, I, all right, I have what I need. I'm just going to fire off with what I think now. Right. And they keep and fucking up. The they case, keep dropping the opportunities and, and look what happens. Yeah. And in the case of Judy, you know, she's been nurtured by loving. I mean, we don't know much about the mother, but nurtured by the father and then up and then once she hits a certain age and is aged out of being this like little girl then all of a sudden she is kind of needing that attention but not getting it well, and but there's we, uh, see i don't know i what? don't know that we get enough of their relationship to really know that because no i, mean, I wish i did no i wish i did get more of of that well, yeah. because we we don't have yeah. that much to go by other than what she said to the inspector. But like when she has the interaction with him at the, at the table and she comes in and like wants to like give him kind of a, like she's not trying to like French him, but like no. to give him a, a kiss on the lips. He's not saying like, get away from me, you piece of trash. He's just saying like, yeah, that that's you're too old for that now. I didn't I didn't. Yeah, I didn't get enough to make a decision one way or the other on her parents, but they didn't seem with them. It seemed more like she had some things that she needs to work out. Oh, yeah, of course. And and that's the yeah. thing. like we don't get enough. I mean, like and the mother made no impression no, I. Th- but I think that when you see the interaction between the father and Judy's little brother, who's like still a little kid. Yeah. And, you know, he's very much like the little boy with the toy gun and everything like and how they have this like very close father son relationship. And she's just kind of witnessing that. And, you know, that's certainly like teasing her with it. And uh, I look obviously she's got some some problems to work out uh and i believe that this was actually adapted in a way from a book written by a psychologist or a yeah. psychiatrist yeah and uh, i don't know cuz i haven't read it exactly like if there was this type of judy person i i know that there was a 
think his name was like Henry in the book or something, but, uh, or Harry, but he, uh, you know, that's where the James Dean character comes from. But mm-hmm. I think it's, it's developed way further beyond what the book is talking about, because I think that the book is that talking about, you know, uh, a kid who, I don't know, does seem like a rebel without a cause. Right. Right. And, and and coming back to that interaction with Judy, I think what it does show is that these are parents who are very much adhering by these like societal rules and regulations that they feel they have to adhere by rather than just responding naturally to their children. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, except for except for Plato's parents who are not adhering by societies Ugh. but like no. yeah she's she's just the maid the maid says oh she's always off going somewhere doing something and yeah um yeah it's pretty fascinating and the the maid housekeeper whatever you want to call her like she cares about him so much and i that's something i would have liked to have gotten a better understanding of because It's like, why is he not maybe looking to her more for, you know, parental figure? Uh, Because she's the closest thing he's got until he discovers, you know, Jim, uh, which is kind of like uh, half father figure, half like love interest obsession. And uh, I mean, that's a whole other thing. There's a whole lot of, yeah. I mean, there's, there, there's a whole lot of theory and, um, subjects. I mean, also be, because I mean, James Dean was, I mean, I mean, they're real in real life. James Dean was, uh, by, I mean, I don't don't know if there was necessarily a word for what he was at the time. And certainly he pansexual um, died. Yeah. He died too young for us to really, know the the full span of of what was going on but yeah he you know and sal salminio up all the trees. i think bisexual as well um i believe so and there are rumors that he and nicholas ray the director were uh you know There's doing r- a little funny business rumors that the- he wasn't the only one in the cast that nicholas ray was doing some funny business with well, yeah, Natalie Wood, and that's that one's confirmed. I think Salminio is more still rumor, um, but Natalie Wood and Salminio, I think, were both sixteen, and Nicholas Ray was like in his forties, like forty three or something, and uh, yeah, pretty pretty bonkers. But then uh, Natalie Wood started canoodling with uh, Dennis Hopper, which is a much more, oh, right. or at least closer to age appropriate. I don't know exactly. I, yeah, we didn't even mention that Dennis Hopper's in this Dennis movie. Dennis Hopper's in the movie. I heard Dennis Hopper, I heard that's how Dennis Hopper got most of his lines cut, was that like, uh, he was sleeping with Natalie, or he was messing around with Natalie Wood, and Nicholas Ray found out and, and didn't like just it. Just took his lines away. Yeah. yeah, and just like cut out a lot of his <sighs> lines. But yeah, a, a young Dennis Hopper, um, which Dennis Hopper- Who looks great. He's, he's also he's so in, good in, this. in Giant. I mean, he's in two out of three of James Dean's films. Oh, that's right. With him. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was surprised you know, Harry Dean I, Stanton wasn't also. Right. Harry Dean Stanton could have been in this and, you know, would have made perfect sense. Yeah. I, the, it's a, a really fantastic cast. And, and it's too bad that we didn't know at the time how uh, incredible of an actor Dennis Hopper was going to be. And, uh, you know maybe he would have had a, a bigger part, but you know, I think this is just like he had just started. Things you know? worked out the way, look, if Dennis Hopper had had a bigger part in this, who knows if, if we would have ever had easy rider. So easy rider. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I yeah. do. I, I want to bring up the one aspect of, of the film that I think uh, really took away from it. Okay. That's the score. Really? I liked the score. I kept wanting to watch the movie without the score. And I felt that the score, like I'm I'm watching this movie and it's, you know, drama about these interpersonal relationships and generation gap and coming of age. I'm thinking I was like, this plays almost like, like an early two thousands, like independent, uh, movie. Uh, well, the shins weren't in it. So, I, uh, 
<laughs> no, I mean, but yeah, but it does kind of go Plato, along. Plato, this those... song is going to change your life. It, it's, it's the greatest band ever, Plato. Listen to this. Uh, oh my God. You know, New I, slang. Forget this gun. I did notice the music and I, I liked it. I, you know, I thought that it was, I mean, it made sense because at this time, that's the way that movies were scored. Um, and I felt like it came in and came out respectfully and responsibly, you know, I guess you didn't get it. Well, I guess no. I mean, yes, but no, I mean, like, I want to see, like, I want to see this, uh, uh, I want to see this movie like rescored with like all like Elliot Smith songs or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of like, what would fit? And I feel like this, this is the type of, I mean, like, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would necessarily say like, you know, oh, I just use like music from the time, but the music is too, it's too much. Uh, it, it it's yeah, just I mean, too it's... much. And this story is like these, these, it's so intimate. And then all of a sudden you have, dun, 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 right. Dun, but there is this one incredible scene that actually plays with no music. Uh, and, and it's, it almost feels like it should have, what ends up coming in at the very end, but kind of throughout the entire thing. So I'll just play that right now. Mm -hmm. Well, now there, then uh, I think we'll take it for the summer. Right this way. Oh, uh, uh, would you like to rent it? Or are you more in the mood to buy, dear? You decide, darling. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Uh, Remember Um, our budget. Oh, don't give it a thought. It's, uh... Only three million dollars a month. What? Oh, we can manage that. I'll scrimp and I'll save and I'll work my fingers to the bone. You see, we're newlyweds. Yes. Oh, there's just one thing. What about... Children? Right this way. Yes. See, we really don't encourage them. They're so noisy and troublesome. Don't you agree? Oh, yes, yes. And so terribly annoying when they cry. Oh, yes, I don't know what to do when they cry. Do you, dear? Ah, Round them like puppies. Ah. As you see, the nursery's far away from the rest of the house. Hey, you forgot to wind your sundial. And if you have children, you'll find that this is a wonderful arrangement. They can carry on and you'll never even notice. Oh, sunken nursery. In fact, if you lock them in, you'll never have to see them again. Much less talk to them. Talk to them? Heavens. Nobody talks to children. No, they just tell them. <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually think, I for me, it, having the silence throughout the scene and then at the end having the... Like, you know, right. Johnny takes his lunchbox to school every day. Uh, like, I feel like that's going to come in. And that it, I think that that really illustrated... <laughs> the music kind of takes away from just the because you've got the scene with you got these three tr- we've been talking about how troubled they are and and yeah. now and and how they're like on the this this cusp between childhood and adulthood and here they are and they're doing such a like kid thing to do they're like playing house they're playing family yeah. but well but but it goes into this dark place with the well, children here's what I think Oh, it's an extremely dark place, but I feel like what really works with that scene is that you hear the you hear nothing else but the crickets. So it's like there's just this kind of like vastness where it's like they there's just three of them are the only things in the world right now. They've got their own thing going on, and that music at the end, it's kind of just like they're entering this just like fantasy life. And uh, what goes in from there is they that's I think when they go into the like little gazebo or something and are kind of playing uh, like parents and child to Plato. And it's, I don't know, pretty fascinating. But uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention is that when I watched that scene and he's talking about like, oh, someone forgot to wind their sundial and oh, a sunken uh, a sunken nursery because it's in a pool. All I could think was, oh, an indoor outhouse. <laughs> Beetlejuice. Um, yeah. By the way, Deliver good James Dean does that great Jim Backus impersonation. Oh, like, yeah. oh, we'll just drown them like puppies. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, but the it's, Mr. Magoo. It shows this. Well, that was a story from on set was that like Jim Backus taught James Dean how to do the Mr. Magoo voice. Right. Uh, yeah. So but it was so 
telling the way that they're talking about children. Oh, well, just lock them up here and you'll never have to talk to them. It's like, oh, well, who wants to talk to them? Yeah. And there's so much coming out, especially from from Plato. Yeah. Well, well, what's so cool about this is that they're talking to people that they can really relate to about this serious issue that the three of them have this this thing that they share and they're they're getting it out but like in their own way and you know that's kind of what you do is like you kind of make up these funny ways to like talk about these serious problems you know when you're that age you know right but in terms of the music i still i feel like the oh, the tone the tone of the movie doesn't it's it's kind of like all right um a movie like pleasantville uh-huh having that music under a scene like that would fit because of the nature of that right. movie that it's yes. kind of satirizing but where this is just kind of it's the real deal it's it's genuine i think adding that music in it 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 brings it back down to the level of i guess like whatever your standard teen melodramas would be because yeah. i think that having the melodrama in the dialogue is great because teens are melodramatic you know right. it's, that's that's it's nature uh, you're tearing me apart ex- exactly <laughs> i mean but and that's and that's fine i would not criticize it for having melodramatic dialogue but like having it in the music it kind of tells us that, all right, it's just, this is just a teen melodrama. We don't need to take it that seriously. Whereas I, I think it brings up a lot of issues that should be taken seriously. Uh-huh. You know, I I don't know if this is a thing or not. And uh, maybe I should save this for one of my other podcasts. I have a great idea, but I'll never do it. Just released a new episode for the first time in a year, by the way. And uh, I, you know... Would it be, is it possible to do like, not like, kind of like a reverse karaoke thing, but for movies where you have a movie with all of the, you know, score stripped out of it and for musicians to like rescore it on their own, you know, that would be pretty cool. I'm pretty sure that there's been a couple of occasions where, where that might've been done or well, I'm trying. The only examples I can think of are like silent films, like the uh, like well, Gior- Giorgio Moroder's uh, Metropolis. Yeah. Right, but if you have a movie with dialogue in it, and you're able to just kind of strip out any of the score and just kind of insert your own thing. I mean, why wouldn't going on. why why wouldn't you be able to do that? I don't I don't see why. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's up to the studios and stuff, but like that'd be a pretty cool thing to be able to do yeah and then I you mean, can have your dream movie a scoreless rebel well, without a cause or i would want it just more appropriately scored and like with a score that actually like befits the subject matter and the performances and and all right, all right. so dan is your suggestion for there to be a re-release of this movie with a different score yeah i mean yes that is like I wouldn't necessarily remake this. Like uh-huh. there's something to be said for making movies in a similar vein. And I would say like maybe a loose remake of this would actually really work like a, a contemporary remake, because I mean, like, look, you can look at all the differences you want, but inherently like, you know, human behavior stays pretty consistent over time. Uh-huh. So I I think you could absolutely take these uh these issues and these themes and put them in a contemporarily set take on Rebel Without a Cause. I would not call it Rebel Without a Cause. I wouldn't yeah. even I would very loose remake. Um but yeah, honestly like what would I be really interested if I saw that you know my local movie theater was showing Rebel Without a Cause but with a new with like I don't know a score by Johnny Greenwood or um <laughs> Or, or like I'm trying to think of like someone who really understands tone, or like just with like with all songs by Elliot Smith, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd I buy mean, that for a dollar. I mean Johnny Greenwood and what he does with like the Phantom Thread 
you know, it's that that to me is just the the ultimate. And that's the one that like I want to see performed like a live orchestra. That's my dream. I, I was listening to that score recently. <laughs> Just the score? I think that's why it popped up. Yeah, I I saw like on Twitter, like someone was like, oh, I put this on. And then I was I was reading, so I usually like to put on some uh, uh-huh. music, uh, either instrumental or non non intrusive vocals. Uh, yeah. In yeah. fact, for, for example, for instance, I could t- I'll share this brief tangent here. Was reading uh, was reading uh, The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood and I um, found the great com- companion music to it was uh, Enya and the, the albums oh. of Enya. I just kind of put on Enya albums and read it and it, it really accompanied it. Well, it benefits from the Orinoco flow. It well done. Okay. Um, it helps you sail away, sail away, sail away. I mean, granted, Handmaid's Tale might not be my book of days, but oh, I don't know. There's yeah, I. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that I think that it would be fun to see this with a, a different score. Um, I think that this movie is uh, really fantastic, and it's one that I'm definitely going to come back to again another time. I I did not think I was going to have this, you know affinity for it but it's great and um it definitely makes me want to watch giant and east of eden which i hadn't seen and uh, it really makes me wonder about you know of course everybody thinks like you know what else would we've gotten from james dean and and uh, you know then there's some people who say like you know had he not died young then he you know, might have just fizzled away and become somebody like Marlon Brando, who was, you know, the, you know, the hottest thing around. And then it took Marlon the end, Brando a long time to fizzle. It did out. take Marlon Brando a long time, but like, man, I, I was watching uh, that documentary that Val Kilmer put together of his life, which is. I mean, as a documentary, it's not incredible, but it's really fascinating to watch and it's really beautifully done. But uh, his footage, because he just has had has so much like camcorder footage from his entire life, uh, but of Marlon Brando on the set of The Island of Dr. Moreau is just like, oh no, mm. that poor man. What has happened? But, oh, really? Um, oh my God. It's sad. Uh, it's sad so you know and it's hard to say like you know what would have happened with james dean i feel like there still could have been another decade or two you know of like solid performances you know i i try to think of you know movies that came out in the the following decades where it's like maybe he would have been in them and you know it's i mean it would have been great it, it would have been great to have had him so um, I I want to say he was what twenty six when like he 24, died twenty four um and and that was in nineteen fifty five so then you know fifteen years later it's it's nineteen seventy to so to have had him at at that age um at a time when when f- like film really went through like a kind of a rebirth yeah and you had i mean like you know what's james dean could have like worked with scorsese who who knows right yeah no absolutely i i'm you know we we will never know and uh it's it's really unfortunate Of, of course it's incredibly sad that he died especially the way that he died um which you know it it makes watching these movies hit in a different way than they would with you know, had he died any other way, you know, a, a car accident. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I So I know that it seems like I'm getting into a territory where I'm going to talk about an idea for, for like, you know, resurrecting him as like a hologram and putting him in movies. But that's not where I'm going. No. I, I was actually thinking about um, and I don't know if it's just because another one of my podcasts has been on my mind that and it's it's been on my mind because I've been trying to find a way to end it. And it's one that I do with my friend Louise, and it's called Louise It to Beaver, where we talk about the television show Leave It to Beaver. We've just gotta figure out a way to shoot that puppy. Sorry. 
Salminio. Shoot that beaver. All right. <laughs> and uh, I have so an idea, is, but we'll talk. <laughs> well, well, no, no, but it's like my head has been in this. Oh, what we're going to do in that podcast is just talk about the series finale and act like we had done every other episode. <laughs> we, Are you going to talk at all about like the reboot, like the 80s? No. Leave it to, no, no. All right. No. Uh, well, there's, uh, there's the 80s reboot, but then there's also the movie reboot from the 90s Yes, that uh, at my freshman year of college, where I met Louise, uh, one of my like sweet mates played Eddie Haskell in that movie, and he was a real jerk. Anyway. Uh, that makes it typecasting. <laughs> uh, but I would say that if he was like secretly a jerk but like really nice to some people but you know anyway but what i was thinking was like what if you did have this movie and it's funny that you mentioned pleasantville because i went back to pleasantville and i was like you know that movie really did have something special and i i think that it really touched on a lot of things that i i kind of could see as being a bit of a crossover with this but my my real thought is that there's this, you know, because in that movie, it's this TV show where these teens, you know, get sucked in from like modern day and kind of change the world of this television show town. And the, and, and people start becoming color and, and things like that. And it's really beautiful and fascinating. And I think that a really interesting way to do something similar to that in this in like the spirit of rebel without a cause so like something that's kind of inspired by the concepts within rebel without a cause so there's like a a a cleaver-esque family in the 50s and they have like very simple life and sitcom problems and all this kind of stuff maybe there's even like a laugh track or something i don't remember if pleasantville did a laugh track at all when they get into that world like it's been a while since i've seen it um But like essentially their whole lives get turned on their side when uh, this kid moves in because his family moves around a lot and he's considered to be this like bad seed and just the effect that he has on like this simple little family next door, you know, the 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 kid who's maybe the same age and his little brother let's say let's say it's really a, a Wally and Beaver situation and uh yeah just kind of like this this person who comes in and challenges the way that people think about the you know the the traditions that they have from the parents the ways that you know questioning the way that the the father treats the mother and things like that why what's up your oh this movie your... sounds familiar uh, it sounds like footloose <laughs> No, I, the new kid who moves to town and challenges the status quo. Right. (laughs) But here's the thing is those kids already, you know, are trying to find a way to break out. Like this is, I I get what you're saying. I get what what you're saying. No, I I see what you're saying. So, so, and actually um, I'll I'll rephrase to make sure I, I, I get it here. But so I'm imagining, so it's like the gym character moving so thinking about how the gym character, like the family moves every time he gets into trouble. Right. And this is maybe like where he moves into a new town and it's kind of like his effect on the family next door and right, showing yeah. them that, oh, there is another way. Like, right. Because I mean, yeah. you got me thinking about Pleasantville. With, um, well, it's, it's, yeah. it's, of course, extremely Pleasantvillian. But, you know... I had watched so much Leave It to Beaver for that stupid podcast that I was doing, which is a terrible idea. Uh, And, you know, seeing the Cleavers doing, you know, these things that people have talked about for so many years as being like this ideal little like cheeky thing. And it's just like, that's a bad dad who thinks he's a great dad. And that's a show where there are issues with the parents and, uh, showing no impact by the children. And I want to say that it started in like 54. So it's right around the same time as Rebel Without a Cause. Mm. And it's almost like, uh, even though it started like probably slightly before, it's almost like there's, it's in a way like a defense against a movie like Rebel Without a Cause where it's like, 
it's like, oh no, but but this is the way that people are, and this is the way that families are, and I. Uh, you know, the, the dad is, you know, he goes to work and the mom, she goes shopping and she cooks and she cleans and she's happy about it and does silly things and rolls her eyes at the dad. What you, you look like you have something to say. Oh, no, I was going to say, like, you I mean, leave it to be premiered in 1957. So 57. Oh, that okay. makes that honestly makes a lot of sense that. Yeah. Shows like this might be put up there to kind of counterbalance your 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 movies like Rebel Without a Cause that are showing that like hey like these teenagers have problems and they're people and right like yeah. they don't just get and solved. parents aren't perfect right parents yeah. aren't perfect yeah yeah and Dan you and I are both parents we can admit parents aren't perfect and uh, you know and and there's this def- there's this idea of this, like these fifties families and like, you know, the, the parents are always right. And the kids should just obey, obey, obey. Father, and father knows best. Not just the father kids, knows best. not just the kids yeah. and the wife too. Like, yeah, everyone, oh yeah, everyone's got to fall in line there. Yeah. So anyway, oh. that's kind of, that's just where my mind was going because like, I, I feel like this movie Real, like I really, if if I was to ever like go back to school for you know any type of like film studies or anything, I would really look at though the impact that this had on popular culture, you know, uh, of the era. Because like, what is the ripple effect of something like this? And like the the tight defense of you know what should be. And it's funny because. Uh, I'm in the middle of watching a movie that I'm not going to name because it has to do with our next episode. And there's this, a very similar theme going on. <laughs> You're nodding like crazy. <laughs> and it's like, it's all I can think of right now. Of course, done in a very, very different way, which we'll talk about I, on the uh, next episode. Yeah, I did not at all ex- expect these connections. But before we before we we kind of move on and, and, and wrap up, I did want to point out because there is another star of this movie that we have not talked about and this star perhaps has the most impressive filmography of them all and that is the griffith observatory oh yeah <laughs> which by the way another note on the music so at the end yeah. at the at the end this incredibly dramatic that's the other thing i was like oh they kind of botched the finish uh because at the end you've got this dramatic you've got like the like plato getting shot and right, all this yeah. stuff with with the gun and everything and then jim introduces judy to his parents okay i laughed out loud so hard because i was just like he's having this very emotional moment where they just like you know, Judy puts the shoe back on Plato and and Jim zips up the jacket that he gave to him and everything. And, you know, they're they're mourning this friend that they've made who's like had, who has all these problems and they just really care about him. And they're still dealing with Buzz's death somewhere in there. What happened and like that happened an hour just, ago. That happened like hours before that. And uh, Jim's parents are there because they're with Ray, the inspector, um, to try to find Jim. And he goes up to his parents and and he's got Judy with him. And then he's like, Mom, Dad. And then I was just thinking, like, if he said, if he says, this is Judy, I'm going to lose my damn mind. And he goes, this is Judy. She's my friend. And I was like, what? Yeah. Are you well, kidding me? And then the sweeping music. And I just, I just wanted like a title or a voiceover to come up to say, just another day in the exciting life of the Griffith Observatory. Yeah. No kidding. Uh, yeah. The Griffith Observatory where, uh, you know, I lived super close to that place for quite a while. Uh, it was, you know, one of the first things that I saw when I moved to LA, where I don't live anymore, but, um, you know, the first day I was living in LA, I saw the Griffith Observatory. I was on a walk and I just was just like, ah, yes. Okay. How much shit that. has gone down there? Oh my God. Well, I, uh, you know, on the last episode when we were talking about this movie and you're tearing me apart, one of the things that we brought up was Earth Girls Are Easy, where the Griffith Observatory 
was transformed into a nightclub. That's the nightclub where they go to where Damon Wayans has his little dance off. Right, which I love how, by the way, the Griffith Observatory appears in all of these other movies as like the Griffith Observatory. And Earth Girls Are Easy filming in L.A. where there are tons of nightclubs. It's like, we're going to use the Griffith Observatory. Just slap a bunch of neon in this. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, like Dragnet. um, oh, Oh, man, what was the other... Oh man, I was trying. There's another one that just popped into my head and then left. That really uses the uh, the the Griffith Observatory and is it like a Naked Gun movie or something like that? No, I don't know. I don't, it's a it's a really beautiful place. Yeah, I uh, there's a, a lot of really nice hiking trails near there. I uh, it's a it's an awesome spot, and they were totally right to do to film there. And uh, they certainly elevated that location as being even more iconic than it, than it already was. And, right. you know, there's a, a bust of James Dean that's over there. And, you know, I think being there, knowing that this film was, you know, famously filmed there, you know, you feel that energy when you're there. And I felt that even though I hadn't even seen the movie at that point. So, yeah. Anyway, five stars. Would visit again. <laughs> this uh, is Yelp the podcast. Yeah. What are we reviewing next week, Dan? <laughs> okay. How many stars? Will we, no. Uh, but, but, yeah. So, Rebel Without a Cause. Um, man, if you've never seen it before or if you haven't seen it in a long time... It's on HBO. Uh, check it out. It's uh, it's fucking great, man. It, it re- it's trouble without a cause. It's better than you think it'll be, despite the score. Uh, ah. look, I mean, it's like the one thing, but yeah. So, um, so our next episode. Uh, this is this is a big one for us. This is a big one for us. This is one of those that it's always kind of been sitting there on the list, and uh, so excited that that we'll be talking about it. Uh, it is 1987's "Back to the Beach," starring Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello, and uh, with a special appearance by the person that that I know was the one who got me into the theater to see it. Pee Wee Herman. Pee Wee Herman. You've got Lori Laughlin. Oh, who's, you know, yeah, Jailbird, Lori Laughlin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a Damien Slade. Oh, I want my two dollars. It's a, it's an incredible bananas movie, and I uh, well, I can't wait to talk oh, about and it. There's actually, so many sorry, things. I speaking of say. of Leave It to Beaver, it also features cameos by uh, Barbara Billingsley, Tony yeah. Tony Dow, and Jerry Mathers as the. That's Beaver. true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, man, I I just want to say so much already, but but I won't. But but I what I will say is that uh, Dan, on your next chicky run, I wish you a good journey. Good journey. Jump up and down in the blue suede shoes. Hey.